We left off in Episode 7, Degenerate, Part 1, talking about how and why historic cemeteries become abandoned. And while it's clear that the issue of cemetery neglect and abandonment is not confined to any one cultural or ethnic group, the reasons for why a white Anglo-American burying ground is mistreated versus a black or indigenous burying ground is very different indeed. Now, you may be inclined to think that neglect is neglect and abandonment is abandonment. But as with anything having to do with racial and social minorities, even their mistreatment is held to a different standard than that of whites. And that includes their cemeteries. Let's talk about that. I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 7, Degenerate, Part 2. You'll remember that the Cathan Cemetery in Putney, Vermont, and the South Yard Burying Ground in Keene, New Hampshire, were two examples of white Anglo-American cemeteries we talked about in Part 1. Both were the first Anglo-American burying grounds in their respective towns, both the resting places of the town's first Anglo-American settlers. And both cemeteries, so abused and overgrown by the turn of the 20th century, that most of the townspeople considered them little more than an eyesore. So how did such profound neglect like that happen? Well, its origins have its roots in an evolving set of cultural norms regarding death and its literal place within everyday life. Robin Lacey, a heritage consultant and archaeologist who will be starting her Ph.D. work at Memorial University in Newfoundland this fall, did her master's thesis on this very idea. She shared with me in an online interview last winter some of her findings of how the New England Puritans and their descendants, people who would go on to settle the towns of Keene and Putney, changed their views on the use of communal space over time. Changes that would come to affect their views on the use of cemeteries. So my favorite examples of this changing use in cemeteries is probably Guilford, Connecticut. They had a cemetery that was in the town Green in the late 1630s, I believe. They were founded by a group of Puritans who arrived in that area. And the town Green, I find really interesting because I know it's a cemetery. I know there are people buried there. I've read the accounts of when trees fall over like they do in um, what was it, New Haven and pull skeletons out of the ground. But there are no signs anywhere around the Green. There's there's signs everywhere, but there's no signs that say that this is still a settler burial ground. When the Puritans settled it, their relationship with death and with burial spaces was less reverent. 17th century New England Puritan settlements saw their town greens as true communal spaces. All throughout this area, which included the burying ground, people walked, conducted business, hung their laundry, and grazed livestock. With their very unsentimental attitude toward death, Puritans saw no need to separate their burying ground from their daily activities. 
later generations maintained this relatively detached connection to their burial places and even expanded on it by reclaiming some of that valuable downtown real estate. In the late 18th century, early 19th century, when it was still a visible burial ground, they thought that was uncouth, that it was in the middle of town, and you would think about death when you saw it, heaven forbid, and that people could just walk straight through it. So they put a fence around it, and then they eventually moved the headstones. When you start going back through the records, it says that the headstones were moved, or or say the graves were moved. And then at some point, it stopped saying graves and just start saying headstones, because they never actually moved the bodies. They just moved all the headstones and then literally like brought dirt in to level the ground because they thought that the um, undulations caused by the coffins falling in and changing the surface, they thought that was unappealing. So they leveled the ground out again. This idea of change of use of public space isn't just a phenomenon in New England. Both Washington Square Park in New York City and Lincoln Park in Chicago started out as cemeteries and are still cemeteries today, though you wouldn't necessarily know it. They were both set up on pieces of property that were far outside the city limits. Initially, these far-flung cemeteries were used by local churches for their deceased congregants and by the city to bury unclaimed bodies and victims of epidemic disease. As these areas around the cemeteries became more developed and more desirable, deliberate steps were taken to either remove the graves or simply cover them over with enough soil so as to smooth out the landscape. The same practice Robin Lacey told us about on the town greens in Connecticut. This is just something people did. The consequence being that graves and skeletal remains are constantly being discovered in both of those New York City and Chicago parks. But these days, we have preemptive measures in place to deal with any skeletal remains or gravestones recovered in places like Washington and Lincoln Park. Before any construction projects are allowed to take place, Archaeologists are called in to research and dig test pits to see if there are any subsurface remains that might be impacted by the construction. If so, we generally like to leave them where they lay, if possible. If not, they are carefully removed, inventoried, and proper arrangements are made for their reinterment in a safe place. Today, we operate with an eye toward preservation of the actual gravestones and respectful treatment of the remains. But that standard of care is only as good as the history we base it on, and those preemptive practices aren't always followed to the letter. The result? Cases like the African burying ground in Portsmouth, New Hampshire where there was plenty of historical evidence that indicated burials on that site on Chestnut Street, but city officials chose not to believe it or implement the proper preemptive mitigation practices. As I said, we'll get back to that. There are some groups and towns who take a more active approach to preservation and try to address issues in their local cemeteries before they're a desperate problem. Brian Post, 
who we heard from in part one, explaining that a cemetery upkept is much less likely to attract vandals, is a professional stonemason who also does gravestone restoration. He was gracious enough to take me on a tour and walk me through some of his work at the Forest Hill Cemetery in Charlestown, New Hampshire, on a blustery day last fall. And it's one of the cemeteries I've, I've done uh, gravestone repair work for several years now. It's pretty typical of many cemeteries around this area that it's a mix of slate and marble and some granite. And particularly the marble stones are in pretty rough shape, largely just from it being a weaker stone and uh, a little bit in combination with the acid rain, but also from modern maintenance practices and history of poor, poorly done repairs in the past and, and all that. Brian explains that while some gravestone deterioration is the result of malicious actions, most of what he sees is a mix of well-intentioned but poorly executed fixes, inattentive groundskeeping practices, and just the natural wear and tear of the freeze-thaw cycle inherent to New England weather. These are... These three are stones that we worked on uh, last year or maybe this year. I think these were last year's. And they were two inch, roughly two inch, inch and a half thick marble slabs standing about four foot tall, maybe four and a half feet tall above ground. Single tablets or some of them had bases here where you had a, a notched keyway base. And uh, typically with those, they get hit by mowers, they start to lean or tree branches fall on them, that type of thing, all those can, can cause. And very often, once they tip and, and fall over, they'll break at ground level and often partway up as well, just from the impact of hitting the ground. And that's what we have with all three of these. Two of them, we've done a aluminum channel frame on the sides to provide permanent support to, because the stone at this point is just so weak. And one of the problems with repairing stones in this climate, if you go at it with a lot of epoxy, you're just preventing moisture from moving through the stone. So moisture will build up against the epoxy joint, freeze, and destroy the crystal structure of the rock, and then it's going to snap right next to the epoxy joint. One of the other problems with epoxy prior to that point is it can be really too strong so that if the stone got hit again, it's going to cause damage elsewhere. It's going to create additional breaks. So these stones were done with just a minor, a couple dabs of epoxy in a couple places, really just for support while we're doing the repair. And then it's done with a yawn restoration mortar. But not all stones require such drastic attention to bring them back to an upright, readable condition. Sometimes all that's required is a good cleaning which today can be achieved with non-toxic, no-scrub chemicals. One of the things, since we're right here right now, I was going to mention was on cleaning the stones. Yeah. In the row there in the grate, there's one that we worked on, I think, three years ago, which is substantially lighter in color. And what we're using is D2, is the cleaning product. It's written as a D slash 2, really common, well, it's now common as a stone cleaning product. It's a no-scrub, so you spray it on. Oh and you walk away. The brilliant part about that is is because scrubbing a stone actually wears it away, especially with the marble. 
um, initially what it's doing is it's breaking down all of the organic matter and most of the marble the reason it's turned black is actually a mold so it's actually an organic staining it will break that down and it tends to release a lot of natural pigments so sometimes in the in the you know hour or two after you spray it on the stone will kind of turn red or orange the rain and the wind will just kind of wear it away once once the organic material is dead rather than scrubbing them you can literally just it's a low pressure spray you know just like a little mm-hmm. garden sprayer pretty much non-toxic i wouldn't say you should drink it but <laughs> it's really mild stuff it doesn't hurt the grass or anything like that yeah, and great. safe for all stones great. yeah that's, that's what they use on cleaning all the national monuments and that type of thing mm-hmm. we'll be right back the secret life of death is thrilled to announce our sponsor for this episode oh my goth jewelry company by lindsey gilland handmade jewelry with an edge Lindsay is an anthropologist and archaeologist, as all of the coolest people are. So she comes by her skeletal-themed creations honestly. She works primarily in clay, creating fun, spooky, and sweet jewelry designs. She's got this pair of glow-in-the-dark black cat earrings that made me do a very uncharacteristic girly squeal of delight, I admit. Find her shop on Etsy. Etsy.com backslash shop backslash oh my goth jewelry co. And follow her on Instagram at oh my goth jewelry co. That's oh my goth jewelry company. Handmade jewelry with an edge. And we're back. So far, we've learned that the practice of cemetery abandonment in New England has its roots in the attitudes of the region's mostly Puritan settlers, that death was just a part of life, and nothing to be all that fussed about. Later generations took that attitude further still, and sought to remove reminders of death mentally and physically, and actually covered over graves to reinvent their public spaces to accommodate their idea of usefulness and aesthetic. And all of that makes sense, as America has always been about moving forward and progress. Part of the mandate of its earliest settlements required that land must be improved, meaning cleared of all trees and turned into cultivated land that could produce a commodity. And when that land was exhausted, move on. Literally, move somewhere else, resulting in mass migrations of New Englanders to the Midwest and West. By the mid-1800s, this here-and-now culture and its frantic attitude toward moving on to find the next big thing had bled New England's rural communities dry. Their populations were decimated by migrations to the industrializing cities and better cropland out west. Properties were abandoned en masse. Some towns ceased to exist almost entirely. Those people left in town, descendants of Puritan attitudes, already with little attachment to their history, probably regarded an overgrown cemetery as just one in a long line of things in town, that were abandoned and overgrown. Plus, by then, anyone who had ever known the deceased had either moved away or were deceased themselves. And with a cemetery already looking shabby and no one left willing to advocate for its upkeep, 
abandonment, disuse, and misuse became much more likely. It wasn't until the celebrations around the United States centennial in 1876 that the country really began regarding history as an entity with intrinsic value, something to be preserved. The centennial got citizens to reflect and take pride in their history. They began to see it as a commodity, igniting a fervor over local and national identity with a cultural movement known as the American Renaissance. Almost every town and city published their first local histories around this time, and every little New England town started to promote Old Home Days, celebrations to entice their long-since-immigrated sons, daughters, grandsons, and granddaughters back east to visit the old home of their ancestors. Sparked by this interest in genealogy, long-lost family descendants, now wanting to connect with their past, found their way back to, or for the first time ever, their ancestors' hometowns. Like the Cathan descendants, who came to Putney, Vermont in the 1890s and discovered the deplorable conditions of the family cemetery. They finally made the locals take notice of the state of the cemetery resulting in historian David Mansfield writing the book The History of Captain John Caffin in 1902, which gave us those wonderfully detailed accounts of the neglect at the cemetery. The Caffin Cemetery is an extreme case of cemetery neglect and abandonment. It really is something to have to cross someone's yard to get there, and then see the condition of the remaining five gravestones along with the chunks of broken slate strewn about the site. And just as the Cathan descendants at the turn of the 20th century were moved by this scene to preserve their history, so too is a modern Cathan descendant, Tom Giffen. My, my great-grandmother was uh, Clara Bell Cathan, and she lived up in uh, Warren, Vermont. Tom is the president of VOCA, the Vermont Old Cemetery Association, an all-volunteer group whose mission is to clean up historic cemeteries and restore and preserve what stones they can. They've done work in the Cathan Cemetery, installing a veteran's gravestone to commemorate Charles Cathan on site, as well as a sign marking the cemetery and some of its history. VOCA has helped save thousands more gravestones and hundreds of other cemeteries in Vermont. Last summer, Tom invited me to Rutland, Vermont, where he serves as a cemetery commissioner for the city, to see firsthand the impact a reclaimed cemetery can have on a community. This, I mean, cemeteries become very interesting places and very valuable property for the for the communities to say, hey, this is our cemetery, this is our history. Like you go, if you go down to Boston and to the old burial yards, I mean, they're very popular. Places like the West Rutland Cemetery are more than just a resting place for the dead. They are also repositories of local and national history, providing tangible ways for us to connect with that history, promoting community pride. And what, what we have done here, because of this historic nature, I mean, cemeteries have so much. People are interested in their history, and I think that has a lot to do with it. And one of the nice things is I've been dealing with um, students for almost a decade working in the cemetery. 
And since I've been doing that, knock on wood, we have not had any vandalism. Um, the little we had, I mean, people were upset, the kids were upset about it. Tom points out that the preservation of a cemetery can be more than just the right thing to do for those of the past. A well-maintained public space has benefits for all of us here in the present. This happened for this cemetery. As you can see, they brought in the car. This is the farmer's market that they're restoring next door. Uh, so this, this, so now they put a new fence up because we had a, some guy that came in <clears throat> under the influence and smashed into the fence, had to replace it. There's a lot more interest in this cemetery now than ever before. Entrance to the city, farmer's market right yes. here, the railroad car. It was in rough shape for till I got took it over. It was sad, and um, I'm. It was embarrassed when I first took it over. I'm not embarrassed anymore. No, it's it's amazing. It, again, it's all done with volunteers and with the, with community interest. The alderman and the mayor have been helpful. It'll never be like I tell people. It'll never be perfect, but we'll do what we can. When I first started this research, I thought the condition in history of the Cathan Cemetery in Putney, Vermont must be an aberration. I had this notion that people of the past, particularly in small, hard, scrabble New England towns, had always been virtuous in right-acting when it came to their regard for their history. But we know now that's not true. And I had fallen into the very trap I preach others to avoid. The sanctification of history. 125 years ago, the degenerate sons of Putney bashed and thrashed the Cathan Cemetery, or what was left of it, because by then the plot had already been cut up for a house lot, bones carted away in the back dirt, and the land plowed up and planted and grazed by farm animals. The sons had been just the latest in the decades of mischief and neglect at the site, mischief and neglect carried out by the town and its citizens. They were but one in a long line of people who didn't give a shit, at a time, however, when no one gave a shit. But that still didn't make it all right. Because at the heart of this issue is still the vulnerability of those in a society who can't speak for themselves. Inherent in any burial is the act of ceremony and respect. Why go to all the trouble of finding the right spot, digging the hole, placing the marker, if the intent was not to hold space for these people and show some kind of acknowledgement? And sure, times move on, interests change, but at what point do we absolve ourselves from the responsibility and accountability to those who no longer have a voice? At what point do we stop worrying about what happens to the least of us? The answer is, in part, when they become inconvenient. In Putney, New York City, and Chicago, these were the cemeteries of the poor, or of long-ago ancestors. People who had never had or had long since lost anyone who might advocate for their resting places. These graves were in the way, and the powers that be at the time had yet to see the benefit of historic preservation.
but the fate of the grave sites in Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Bellows Falls, Vermont represents something different. The history of Blacks and Indigenous people in this country has a history of its own. One that hinges on the entrenched practices of our white, Anglo-American-dominated culture that is designed to marginalize and dismiss anything that detracts from its own self-centered narrative. Pick up any one of those town histories inspired by the centennial celebrations of the American Renaissance, and you'll be hard-pressed to find any real information about the contributions of people of color to the founding and settlement of our country. And what you do find is heavily slanted to paint their presence as, at best, impermanent, and at worst, an unholy menace. Such attitudes about indigenous people are reflected in Bellows Falls' first town history, written by Lyman Hayes in 1907. History reveals that when the white men first came into the Connecticut River Valley, there were but a few roving tribes of Indians in this section of New England. The roaming Indian was the sole human occupant of this whole territory, and by his savage life and instincts, added greatly to the unpleasant setting of the picture that greeted the first white settlers in 1753. It would be hard to imagine a more unpleasant or uninviting outlook. The attitude that Hayes' work reflects is clear that prior to the arrival of white people, this place was unpleasant and uninviting, and white people fixed it by making it livable and civilized. The indigenous Western Abenaki were roaming and roving, implying they didn't have any real connection to this place, but were just passing through, and of course that they were savage. This validated how white people treated the land and the Western Abenaki. Whites clearly had a vested interest in denying the presence of the indigenous Western Abenaki and diminishing their importance. Hayes' word choices to describe them were deliberate. Savage is dehumanizing. Roaming and roving creates the sense that they are ephemeral, removing their presence physically and mentally. It all fostered a worldview that kept even the memory of the indigenous Western Abenaki marginalized, which made it much easier to write off their dozens of burials uncovered all over Bellows Falls. They were merely noted with a shrug and a huh, and the houses, roads, and factories were built on them anyway. And in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, it wasn't until 2003 that the African burying ground was officially acknowledged by the city. Despite the numerous historic records of the presence of black people, both freed and enslaved in the city, despite a 1705 map that showed the location of the burying ground, despite the fact that the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire included it among its historic sites in town and placed a plaque on Chestnut Street in 1995. It was only after a giant trench had been dug through the site, exposing human skeletal remains and coffin parts, that the city took notice. 
To be fair, Portsmouth has since come a long way toward making amends and turned Chestnut Street into a pedestrian-only memorial park. But still, you have to wonder, why did it require the public destruction of graves to get the city to take the history of the African burying ground seriously? Well, white Anglo-American culture has, for a long, long time, cornered the market, controlling the historical narrative. Like Lyman Hayes and his history of Bellows Falls, Vermont, we write the books with our stories, casting us as the savior or hero, and everyone else is neatly shaped around us. Hopefully, that's starting to change. I've been in contact with members of the El New Abenaki and employees at the Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire to set up interviews and on-site tours of the burial sites in Bellows Falls in Portsmouth. Scheduling and travel this summer and fall have been difficult due to COVID rules and restrictions, and it just wasn't possible to get these interviews scheduled at this time. I hope that once COVID has passed and life returns to something approaching normal, I can meet up with both of these groups and get their comments regarding the treatment of their ancestors' burials. Humans, being the social creatures that we are, take our cues on how to regard and treat something based on how society around us treats it. If something doesn't look very nice, has a history of mistreatment, our mind tells us that society has already deemed this thing unworthy, lesser than, useless even. Remember what stonemason and gravestone preservationist Brian Post said about a stone wall in good versus bad repair? One of my other main crafts is building stone walls, and what you find with old stone walls is a stone wall in disrepair. People will steal stones from it, and a stone wall in good repair people tend to leave alone. And that, I think, also ties sometimes with cemeteries as well, that when they're in good repair, people recognize that there's value there and tend to not disturb it. And as they start to deteriorate, that's when they're most vulnerable. So if all of our cues tell us no one cares, we go on, not caring either. Even if it seems wrong to us or strikes us as a shame, more often than not, we don't speak up and voice our dissent. If it appears that someone has already decided, we go along with it. It's just the way things are, we tell ourselves. But even if no one appears to care now, that doesn't mean no one ever did. Over time, things fall down. And over time, there are fewer and fewer people able or willing to fix them. Deterioration accumulates, slowly. And at a certain point, nobody can really say when. A threshold is crossed, the goalpost is moved, and a new, lesser standard of care and treatment becomes the norm. And if no one says anything, if no one contests it, this lesser standard becomes accepted. And so on, and so on, and so on, over time. Neglect is something that is allowed to happen. Be it stonewall, cemetery, 
or the legacy of an entire group of people. As I said earlier, the reasons for why the grave sites of Black and Indigenous people are abandoned and often disturbed are not the same for the grave sites of white Anglo-American settlers. But the one thing their stories do have in common is that they bring to our attention the issue of accountability and the long-term implications of all those things around us that we willingly ignore, willfully forget, and ultimately, what we implicitly accept in regards of how to treat one another. When something's not right, it's never right. And the rationale that that's just the way things were, or no one else said anything either, or that was a long time ago, are never, ever valid excuses for inaction. It's a mentality that not only creates marginalization, but perpetuates it. Because when we start to use time to absolve ourselves of responsibilities and use tradition to downplay our role in a system that denies the importance and dismisses the presence of select parts of our society, both in life and in death, it reinforces the attitude that, if they are not us, then they are not ours. And to me, that's truly degenerate. One final note. The burying grounds mentioned in this episode are either on public land and are accessible via public roads or have access via a legal right-of-way. The Western Abenaki Burying Ground in Bellows Falls, Vermont, and the African Burying Ground in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, are located in heavily industrialized and urbanized areas of their respective cities. Their locations in particular are well-known in their communities and a matter of public record. By talking about their locations in this episode, The Secret Life of Death isn't revealing the locations of any clandestine, undisturbed burial spots. Special thanks for this episode go to our sponsor, Oh My Goth Jewelry Company by Lindsay Gilland. Handmade jewelry with an edge. For fun, spooky, and sweet handmade jewelry, find her shop on Etsy. Etsy.com backslash shop backslash oh my goth jewelry co. And follow her on Instagram at oh my goth jewelry co. Our interviewees, Robin Lacey of Spade and the Grave. If you'd like more information about Robin's research and archaeological services, or her recently published book, Burial and Death in Colonial North America, visit her website, spadeandthegrave.com. Brian Post of Standing Stone Landscape Architecture. If you'd like more information about Brian's work as a stonemason, stonewall builder, and gravestone preservationist, visit his website, standingstonevt.com. Tom Giffen, president of the Vermont Old Cemetery Association, or VOCA. For more information on VOCA's projects, or if you're interested in becoming a member, see their website, V O. 
ca58.org. And to Jennifer Vanell and Badger Studios for their musical arrangement and accompaniment. Transcripts of every episode are available on our website, thesecretlifeofdeath.com. For more information about this podcast, weekly posts, fun extras, find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Secret Life of Death Podcast and on Twitter at TSLOD Podcast. You can download our shows from our website or find us on Stitcher, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Podcast. Remember to rate our show. It really helps. <laughs> <laughs>